Ready for Love Radio. This is your host and love coach, Nikki Lee. Last week, we started our conversation with Dr. Faith Harper about her book, Unfuck Your Brain, Using Science to Get Over Anxiety, Depression, Anger, Freakouts, and Triggers. Now, you know, we, we talked about anxiety, depression, and anger in our everyday lives. And, I mean, who, who doesn't have some kind of anxiety in your everyday life that you have to deal with? And I personally thought it was a fascinating conversation and in a way that we can all understand which I I really appreciated that because it's so easy to talk about the brain and how it works and honestly not understand a word of what was said but I got it I understand and I'm still enjoying the book and just about finished and Faith it's awesome to have you back with me and we are going to talk about trauma today Yay! Yes, the reason that I don't get invited to parties, I talk about trauma and sex, and just nobody wants me around. <laughs> it, 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 I can understand. <laughs> I can. You can relate to that. Yes. I can. I can. Yeah. It's like I was. I went to. Uh, I went to Pittsburgh one time, and I was helping out and and going for a, a fundraising event, and. Yeah, I love Megan. I really do. But we walk in and we're in a hotel lobby, and she looks at her boyfriend and she says, "This is Nikki. She does a radio show about sex." I said, "Can you not say it so loud in a hotel lobby?" (laughs) The way our friends, you know, identify us. (laughs) I'm sure you understand. All right. So let me let me tell the listeners a little bit about you first, and then we'll dive right in because I got lots of questions for you, and I'm sure more are going to come to mind as we talk. So Faith Harper, and she's got all these letters after her name, but so let me, let me tell you. She's got a Ph.D., she's an LPSC, ACS, ACN, and she's known as a badass funny lady with a Ph.D. And y'all were going to agree by the time the show was over. She's a licensed professional counselor, board supervisor, certified sexologist, and applied clinical nutritionist with a private practice and consulting training business in San Antonio, Texas. She has been an adjunct professor and a TEDx presenter and proudly identifies as a woman of color and uppity intersectional feminist. And she tells me that her publisher came up with that. She's the author of several highly popular five-minute therapy zines on subjects as anxiety, depression, and grief. And also adulting and intimacy. And you know what? There's probably more coming, (laughs) which is good, which is good because we have more to learn. And she's got this really cool writing style that I think people that even if they don't like the, the normal kind of self-help books, they're going to get into this because y'all are going to see she does not use the usual language in the usual ways that people do. And she makes up really interesting words. That y'all are going to notice that too, I have a feeling. So it's great to have you back with me. And we are, we are going to have fun with this, even though it's a very serious topic that we need to talk about today. 
And and you're also you're also uh, trauma certified. Is that right? Um, I am. Yeah, I am trained in pretty much every evidence-based tr uh, practice related to trauma therapy. The one that I don't do is EMDR, but um, I'm trained in um, prolonged exposure, um, trauma-focused CBT, uh, seeking safety, cognitive processing therapy. I do trauma-informed hypnotherapy. Yeah, it, my research is in trauma. This kind of um, you know was the grounding of all the all the work that I've done over my career. So yeah. Okay. Now, just just to kind of set the stage, I, and I, I was I was reading and I made some notes. Trauma can be an illness, an accident, an injury, a loss, or anything that life in life that kicked us in the ass. And I found it interesting that that one of the stats you had was seven or eight people out of a hundred will have PTSD. Mm -hmm. I, I had no idea. I had no idea about that. Now. How, let's let's kind of set the stage for the rest of this. How does our brain handle trauma in a way that we're going to understand? Well, I I think that the one of the best ways I have just I've heard trauma described is, or especially if we're talking about PTSD or um, unresolved trauma, is injury to the nervous system. So a okay. trauma anything that doesn't fit in with how we know how the world is supposed to work. Um, if we get in our car and the world is supposed to work that we end up at the taco place and get tacos, but instead we get in a car accident, that's a traumatic experience because Definitely. that's not the world was supposed to do that day. So there are lots of things that can operate as a trauma that may not necessarily show up like in a DSM listing um, but can absolutely operate as a trauma in our lives because it falls out of compliance with how the world is supposed to work and it, and it causes us a level of pain in the process. The problem is that when something like that happens, we need an opportunity to heal. We are, um, you know, we are creatures just like the cats that let us, you know, and dogs that let us uh, share their homes with them. Um, or any other animal on the planet. And so we need an opportunity to heal when we're hurt. And trauma hurts us. It doesn't just hurt us emotionally. It hurts us physically, even if it's an emotional trauma. Um, and a lot of times we don't get that opportunity for healing, whether because the traumas are coming, like, just so fast and so furious. You know, people who have been in, you know, violent situations where they grew up, uh, being abused or they were abused by a partner later on, for example, or, um, you know, people under fire in the military, for example, when, when you were having these things happen over and over and over and over, you don't get a chance to go, well, that was very traumatic and I need time to unpack that. And so what happens is it gets stuck um, and it becomes this stuck, switched on nervous system for, you know, lack of a better way of explaining it is that, you know, the body never got a chance to deal with it. And so it becomes stuck. We know that when, when we have a traumatic incident and cause not everything does, everybody goes through fucked up shit and comes out the other side of it. Not the same because it's changed our lives, but we're not holding that injury anymore. And what we know from um, research, um, specifically the Center for Deployment Psychology has done a lot of research, you know, looking at returning veterans and the like, is that it takes about 90 days to develop this new normal after something traumatic happens. And that first 
30 days is really, really an important part of the process of, of integrating this experience and being able to deal with it and cope with it. And if we don't get that, the chances of it being something that's stuck, that becomes integrated into our personality and something that we continue to relive becomes far more likely, which is why so many people do experience either PTSD or something similar. We call it sub-threshold PTSD, which is just a fancy way of saying they don't, somebody doesn't meet the diagnosis, but they're having a lot of symptoms that we would definitely say are trauma reactions, that they have a hard time staying in their body and disassociate, you know, in certain circumstances and, and those kinds of things that we see is, that we realize are trauma reactions. And so we have to work with them as, as, if, as if it is um, a different form of PTSD that they're operating from trauma. And so a lot of the work around that is learning to give people that release so then they can go go back and have effective lives. And that was even just my whole interest in doing work with sexual intimacy is because that's what I thought, that's what would bring people in for therapy. She said, hey, we're doing trauma work. I don't have any trauma. I'm good. But then people will come in, but I'm having problems in my sex life. Can I talk about that? And Absolutely. Let's talk about that. And it was trauma stuff a lot of times. And so um, I had to go back and learn more about doing therapy and coaching around sexual intimacy and learning more about that. And that's a, that was a postdoc for me because that's not something we learned in school because I had to integrate that as part of my trauma work that when people start, saw it affecting different aspects of their lives and they were ready to do the work around it. Interesting. Okay, so if, say a person has a major medical emergency and they go in for surgery and they're in the hospital for that first 30 days. How does that impact them since you said the first 30 days is so critical? Yeah, um, and it depends on their ability to, what, what we need to do is sort of find a way because we're saying this is something that fell out of the realm of how the world is supposed to work. And so we need to find a way to reintegrate that and story that in a way so we can claim that experience and bring it back into our reality. Um, and the problem with medical stuff specifically is, and this is really interesting, we see this all the time in ERs, is that somebody, you know, has surgery or they come in, you know, come into the ER having been hit by a car or been in a terrible accident or something, and they're shaking and they're convulsing, what do we do? We give them a shot to make them stop that. But the thing is that is the body all of the um, the chemicals from the trauma and so a lot of times the, you know the medical establishment says the things that our body is trying to do to you know reestablish equilibrium are not healthy and we need to stop that process and it's a very normal process so when people have a traumatic experience of a surgery or something a lot of times they're medicated into not even being able to um, express what had happened to them and to make sense of it and to find a way to story that back into their timeline to deal with it, that all of their reactions are sort of just medicated into oblivion. And so by the time they finally said, oh, you know, six months later, when you're kind of back and up and on your feet again, you realize I'm stuck. This stuff is still stuck in me because I didn't get a chance to integrate it when I needed to. And that happens specifically with the medical model is we don't let people release that stuff. And it's no different, like, you know, if you're in a car accident, and it's not one where you have to go to the ER and you feel a little nauseous an hour later, 
you know, just fender bender or something. It's because you, you know, had all that adrenaline and stuff pump up. And then when that releases, you'll, I don't feel good, you know, so I, you know, I need like a Coke or something to kind of settle my stomach. But that's at, it's at a bigger level of literally all this stuff was crashing out. And you can, you can see this if you, if you look this up, like on YouTube, you can see videos of this happening in the animal kingdom of animals, you know, coming out of a traumatic experience and having to twitch and literally shake it off, which is why we see a lot of the somatic treatments for trauma involve using things like yoga, um, using dance, um, using things that let people actually be in their bodies and get that stuck stuff out that they hadn't been able to get out in the past. So my guess in terms of medical stuff is you're just sort of medicated into not feeling your feels, and so it gets stuck. Okay. Well, I, tried, I, I was talking to a lot of people in um, a support group that I'm in because I, I had a major surgery about three and a half years ago for an aortic dissection that just kind of happened all at one time. And a lot of the people in that group, it, it came on with no warning and it, it's the kind of thing that you go in, you're told you have it, and you, you basically need surgery within hours or you could possibly die. So, mm -hmm. I mean, your, your life is changing within less than 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Some of us went into a coma immediately after. I did for five days. Some people end up in a coma for, you know, a couple of weeks. And, I mean, you're within the matter of a month, to, to say that your entire life has been flipped upside down is a huge understatement. And then you could mm -hmm. be in re recuperating for the next several months, if not, you know, six months to a year or longer, you know, so, yeah, it, 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 it's a very unusual situation, to say the least, and basically, from the statistics, about 3% of people that have this happen survive, you know, so mm -hmm. this is something that I, I really want to share information I think is going to help the people in the group, because it, it is extremely traumatic, and, and a majority of people do end up with PTSD. So it's, it's mm -hmm. the kind of thing that I, I wanted to, to get some information during the show that's going to help the people in the group because I, I, I know very personally what, what most of them are going through. So, yeah, that, that first month, the majority of us were in the hospital the entire time and mm -hmm. not getting any information about how to deal with any of this. And, and definitely we're, we're all living with a new normal, to say the least. It, it's, it's interesting. It really is. So... Triggers are something that we hear a lot about with people that, that have trauma or are dealing with trauma and people that have PTSD. So what, what is a trauma? I mean, what is a trigger? And the thing that's interesting is triggers become a word that's been overused. I use the word trigger clinically because um, we see, oh, my goodness, I'm being triggered. Someone disagreeing with you is not triggering you. Right. Um, you may not like someone disagreeing with you, and you may be a little emotionally activated. That's not the same thing. Um, a trigger is when something that you, you have an unresolved trauma and something happens that brings you back to that. When somebody's triggered, they're not in the present anymore. They're back in their traumatic experience, and they are living from that point and reacting from that, and they're in survival mode. So, you know, for, for the individuals who've been through something like you, it may be the smell of a hospital. Um, it may be, some, you know, seeing somebody wearing scrubs. It may be like if, if you wake up in the middle of the night and you're kind of hypnagogic and you, and you can't move your body, um, which reminds you of, of, you know, coming out of anesthesia. You know, any, anything like that where you 
like, so your brain goes, holy shit, we've been here before. This is not okay. This is what happened when we were in the hospital. That's a trigger where you're reliving that experience and you're literally reliving your episodic autobiographical memory rather than being in the present. So that is what a trigger is. A trigger is not being upset. A trigger is a reliving of a trauma. That's why I wanted your definition of a trigger, because I, I completely agree it's way overused. Yeah. And, and it's misused. There's a lot of words like that, though. Have you noticed there's a lot of words like that anymore that are misused and overused? Oh, yeah. I, I, um, I actually wrote an article about that. Somebody disagreeing with you is not triggering you. You're not being bullied. <laughs> you know, you know, somebody yeah. saying, no, we're not going to do that, or I don't like your ideas, not bullying you. Um, let's be accurate with our language. Um, because a, a trigger is a very severe clinical response. Um, and being bullied is a, about a huge power differential where you're being hurt in some way, shape, or form. So me telling you your idea is bullshit is rude, but I'm not bullying you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Me telling you that um, I think your idea is bullshit may upset you, but you're not triggered. You know, and when, when we're in the present moment and, you know, we are not disempowered from that, we're not being, we're not being triggered and we're not being bullied. <laughs> I can totally see you doing that, too. What is PTSD and what makes us more likely to be exposed to it? You know, I, I know that I initially thought pretty much only people in the military or that had very extreme and very severe situations could have PTSD, but I've, I've really recently come to understand that's, that's not true at all mm -hmm. and have, have kind of expanded my knowledge. I still have a lot to learn about it, to say the least, but I've, I've learned I'm, I wasn't right about that at all. So what, what can you kind of do to educate us about that? Well, um, we've had some changes recently in the criteria for PTSD. One of the things that they took out recently was it used to be that something bad had to happen and you had to be pretty horrified at the time that it happened. And that's not necessarily the case, especially, you know, we were just talking about military, is that you are trained to not be horrified. You are trained to deal with what you need to deal with, so you're not necessarily going to be horrified at the moment. So that, that was the big thing that was taken out. But they, there are very specific criteria around PTSD. Um, I, I mean, I, you know, I say uh, it, it's, it's a normal response to a really abnormal situation, but in order to qualify for a diagnosis of PTSD, there, there, there have to be very specific things that happen. So the first one is you have to have a stressor, at least one, that you, um, you had direct exposure. You either you witnessed the trauma, um, you learned that a, a relative or a very close friend was exposed to the trauma, um, sometimes for those of us who are in helping professions, we have that indirect exposure to adverse details of a trauma. So like first responders, police officers, firefighters, um, people, I mean, even people in helping professions like, like you and I um, see and hear a lot of fucked up shit. And so we, we can um, be secondary victims as well. But it's not... So according to the DSM, it's like I, you know, like I saw all those terrible things on the news about something going on in Honduras does not count by the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual as being a stressor, even though you and I see people every day that have responses to what's going on in the world. But it, it's supposed to be 
either direct or, or impact you in a very, very direct way. It can't be. Um, and, and that's actually super interesting because a lot of people were very much traumatized by the 9-11 tax because of what we saw in the news. And this was an attack on American soil and all these things. But according to you know DSM diagnosis, that would not count. Um, the next is you have to have these, some, these intrusive symptoms, meaning that you re-experience the traumatic event. Like that's what we're talking about, what a trigger is. Like you have these upsetting unwanted memories that keep coming back in, nightmares, flashbacks, um, this emotional distress, this very physical reactivity that you're still experiencing after this event had happened. No longer in the moment, but your body is reliving it as if it did. Um, and then there's also avoidance. So you are then trying to avoid stimuli that's related to that because nobody wants to feel that way. This is a very logical way to act. This is a very normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Um, so we may avoid the trauma-related thoughts or feelings. Um, a lot of you know, substance use comes from medic medicating those kinds of thoughts or feelings. Um, it may be avoiding external reminders. People in car accidents don't want to be in, you know, be near the place where the accident was. They don't want to drive at all. They want to avoid certain areas. Um, a lot of people in your situation really don't want to go, go anywhere near a hospital um, or smell that smell um, because it is triggering and that you're re-experiencing. And then there is, you have to have a, um, a negative um, alterations in, in your in your mood and in your thoughts. So like it's it's now affecting your ability to just kind of human in the world. And humaning in the world is hard enough as it is. But then um, you're you feeling really isolated. You have a hard time experiencing any kind of positive affect. Um, your decreased interest in activities. Your affect in general is like really really negative. Like uh, exaggerated blame of self or others for causing the trauma just really negative thoughts or assumptions about the world. Sometimes it's an inability to recall stuff about the trauma, like just big gaps in memory. But like your thoughts and your feelings have been altered by this. And this is why a lot of times trauma gets diagnosed as depression um, rather than looking at the core root of it is because that's what depression looks like. Uh, Robert Sapolsky calls depression the clinical inability to appreciate a sunset. Um, and which is a, a brilliant definition. And it's like this, I just, clinical case of the fuck it. It's like I'm not feeling anything, but that is also a key component of trauma. And then there's, there's changes in arousal and reactivity. We see people be hypervigilant, something we see with soldiers all the time. Um, a really heightened startle reaction, difficulty concentrating, difficulty sleeping, um, irritability or aggression, and, and you know, anger masking those other feelings again. Um, really risky or destructive behavior, and it's all about that upregulation in a, in, a, in our emotional volatility. And so those symptoms have to last for more than a month. It's not like because we all had you know times in our lives where we were super upregulated and just super fucked up, and that doesn't mean that we have PTSD. This has to be like an ongoing thing. And the big thing is, and this is the big thing that, again, if, if you only hear one thing out of everything we talk about, hear this, is that this has to be affecting a life domain. Any one of us at any point can probably qualify for 10 or 12 different diagnoses. 
you know. But, but what we're looking at is the impact on your life. I mean, we all have weird, quirky shit because we're human beings that we're dealing with. But when it starts causing some kind of significant problems with our functioning in a life domain, work, school, relationships, that's when it's a problem. Um, that's when we're talking about, like, let's talk about, let's talk about this. This is where it becomes a diagnosis, when it's impacting your life in some way. Um, and that's an important part of it, too. Like, the fact that I can't get on the road anymore means that I can't get to work, means that I don't have a job anymore, is an impact on your life domain. Probably a lot of life domains, because now you're going to lose your house and, you know, all these other things. And so we're looking at how it, how all of these things are affecting the bigger picture and your interaction with the world being a, in a really important part of that. So you don't have to have had even a negative response in the situation. And this isn't even true for military. There's, I'm one of those people that's great in a crisis. Like, you want me in the zombie apocalypse. I'm great at handling that <laughs> shit. Um, a lot of us are really good at handling shit in the moment. And it used to be the expectation was you had to be pretty shocked and horrified by what was going on in the moment, or you didn't qualify for PDC. And that's not true. Some of us are, are we're really good fighters. Um, and then we fall apart at the seams later. And so that's also really important to keep in mind. It's not about your initial reaction. It's about what happens later. If you don't find a way to release that experience, to re you know, to integrate that, ex you know, experience. We talked last week about how, um, you know, even just framing ourselves as survivors instead of victims, those kinds of things can make um, a huge difference. I've had people come to see me in practice, like right after something pretty awful happened, and they really just needed like that one session of somebody hearing them, hearing their pain, hearing their story, holding space for that, and talking through that experience is really just what they needed to prevent a trauma reaction, traumatic grief after something really horrible happened. Like they had the wherewithal of going, oh, that, like what happened was really fucked up. I should maybe just go talk to somebody. And that's really all they needed. They needed somebody to hold space for their experience so they could integrate that story and heal. Um, and a lot of times we don't have that opportunity. We certainly don't have a culture that encourages us to do that. And it doesn't take much, you know, other than somebody holding space for our pain to, to find a way to integrate these experiences. And um, some of us then end up getting stuck if we don't find a way to do it on our own or if it's so complicated and so long-term, like you said, being in a hospital for a full month and being sort of drugged into oblivion and never getting a chance to process are the kinds of things that make it end up being PTSD so often. Interesting. Awesome description, and thank you for the, all the detail because it, it it's a complicated situation. Now, this this may be out of the realm, but due to the fact that I know so many of the people I know deal with this, I'm going to ask this question, and we'll see if this is within your scope or not. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> see, I knew you would. I knew you would. Now, I know that trauma does do really bizarre things to our minds, and because I've I've experienced this myself, and so I'm going to ask now. I, I'm sure that you've heard the term pump head, right? Pump head? I don't yes. think so. Oh, man, I get to, I get to explain something to you. This I did. I love it when I learn a new word. Yes, what's a pump head? Oh, this is exciting. Okay. Okay, now when you, <laughs> a lot of my listeners understand what this is, and a lot of them probably haven't heard of it. So this, this, I, get to, I get to explain. This is cool. Okay, when you have open heart surgery, 
And they after they crack you open, which my surgeon gets this evil little grin when she says that. She says, I'm the one that cracked you open. Okay. And and they have to, when they operate on your aorta, they have to actually take the heart out of your body. Mm-hmm. And they hook you up to the heart-lung machine. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, once they do this, this funky thing work happens. And your mind doesn't work exactly the same after that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then... Your, your mind may work a little slower. You may not remember the right words for things. might be harder to form sentences. Your memory might not work right, and on and on. So each, each person has different things that happen to them. And what we call this is pump head because you were on the heart-lung machine. Mm-hmm. Okay? So what I'm curious about is if, and, and it is very much a brain thing, okay, because your brain is not functioning properly and it's all because of being hooked up to the heart-lung machine. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious if you would have any recommendations about this situation and things. One of the things I did, just to give you an idea, because it was driving me nuts because it was so bad at first, and it, it does improve a little bit over time. But what I did is played a lot of like puzzle and memory games on my phone to kind of exercise my brain to get it back into some kind of normalcy after after the surgery and and just kept exercising it and you know the ones where you have to like figure out the figure out what yeah. the trick is to the games and that kind of thing yeah so okay. yeah i'm cuz i mean I, I figured exercising the muscle in the brain would 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 help but i i know this is an ongoing situation and i know all of us have dealt with this that that had this surgery and had to be on that machine for any amount of time and and i mean it's, it's Obviously not a technical term, but that's what people call it is pump head. So I'm just oh, curious I, if I love so the term. You, I thought you might. <laughs> so see, I got to tell you a new word today. And like I said, I'm getting way too much joy out of that. <laughs> so. I don't know about that. Tell me all about that because I'm I'm an epic nerd. <laughs> uh, that is not something that I've heard about, but totally makes sense to me from what <laughs> I know about like the body mind and what I've learned by um, in my clinical nutrition work as well is, you know, first of all, like we have, and if anybody's interested in the science behind it, go back and read Candace Pert, uh, molecules of emotions, everything we know to feel good. Um, she was, first of all, to, to backstory her, she was, you know, Na- National Institute of Health, researcher she discovered the opioid receptor gene as an undergrad so like a little bit smart you know uh, oh, yeah. a, little, a little bit and um her further research was kind of the mo- the the mother of this movement of realizing that we have these emotional receptors throughout the body so what she called them the molecules of emotion she says the entirety of the body is the subconscious mind we have these receptors throughout the body and more and more research is bearing this out as, as we discussed about, you know, serotonin being produced in the gut and those kinds of things. So the heart being one of those. And this is interesting, too, for those of you who have stutter, studied Eastern thought and heard things about the chakras and wondering if that's woo-woo, is those tend to be connected to gap cell clusters, that there is some medical evidence behind their existence. Which is, which is also really cool. Like there was different words being used, but like things that we know now about acupuncture, now that we studied, we can see and, you know, understand scientifically. Um, 
And so the, the heart being one of those places, that that being a point with a lot of receptors and being, so like this being removed from your body and the body going, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> yeah, because it's not just this thing that pumps, right? There right. it is. It is. Um, there, it's full of all these, these gas cell clusters and these molecules of emotions. And you know, we talk about having you know two brains, you know, the the brain and the gut, but then the heart really being a third and being this other place where of a lot of information coursing through our body and part of the do channel for those of you who study Eastern medicine and those kinds of things. That being removed and sort of offset and putting back is going to make the body just kind of go haywire. And so that makes sense medically, you know, that the heart is doing more than just pumping blood. It is carrying emotions. It's transmitting information. It's not just receiving, it's sending. And that was lost. And the body like had this very shocked response to it that's now created this cascade response. Uh, And the other thing about that, um, so and so the brain is like, what the fuck? I'm not getting the messages. So not only am I sending messages to something that isn't there, I'm not getting messages because something wasn't there. And I don't know what to do about that because I don't understand why I'm working if it's not working. And hmm. so everything just kind of cascades into shock. Um, there is a couple things. You mentioned like doing puzzles and things, and that is perfect because two of the best things to kind of rewire the brain when we're having those kinds of issues is the brain needs meditation and frustration. The meditation, the mindfulness, the brain knowing itself again and paying attention to itself again is hugely important. We all kind of know that one. The second one is the brain actually thrives on frustration. When you're doing a puzzle, you're, it's, you're a little bit frustrated, not in an overwhelming way. It's a solvable one because you get a little bit frustrated and you figure it out and you have that aha moment and you're making a new connection. So the brain thrives on that. So it's really a good way to rebuild new connections, not just for, you know, recovering and maintaining memory, but also rebuilding new com- connections if you've, you know, struggled long-term with trauma reactions, depression, anxiety. Um, I have somebody that I work with that we're doing therapy by phone because her anxiety is so bad I can't get her to leave the house. But one of the things she's doing is we're kind of baby stepping and she's going outside a little bit more is she's learning the piano. And the frustration of having to learn that and do that is is creating new signals in her brain, which are now overriding the anxiety that's been keeping her housebound. So that kind of stuff is really important. And the one other thing that I think is really interesting, and this comes from, you know, my functional medicine nutrition background is my guess is if we looked at inflammation markers on on your uh, pump head tribe when right. they would be through the roof that trauma and, and this is one of the classes that I teach I, I teach a, a class on emotional um, trauma and nutrition and one of the things that we found out and this is one of the things that I'm writing about this is not in print yet but I'm working on it is that um, any kind of trauma, whether it be physical or emotional, and what you went through with both, creates inflammation in the body. Right. Um, the body doesn't care where the punch is coming from. It, it just responds to the punch. So you may not have anything physical happen. Your, your body's going to respond with inflammation. And in your case, you had both. 
So your body responded with this inflammatory cascade. This is why like 50% of people in the U.S. have some kind of autoimmune disease because we have a lot of chronic inflammation. So when they've done like the ACE studies, and that's the adverse childhood event um, research that was done where they looked at people who went through a lot of fucked up shit early on and how that affected their lives through the rest of their lives. They found out they were not as more like they were just as likely to have like double the chance of depression and stuff, but also the double the chance of medical issues like strokes and diabetes and things like that. And the researchers decided, well, that's because if you have a lot of fucked up things that happen, you're just not making good decisions for yourself because you were traumatized. So you're doing dumb shit. So if you had trauma and you're just eating a lot of Cheetos and sitting on the couch rather than going for a run, you're going to just die sooner. Well, that's victim blaming, first of all. And it's also not true. Um, the part that they weren't realizing, the part they were missing was all of those things cause an awful lot of inflammation. And if we don't treat the inflammation, we continue to have problems. And we also thought that the blood-brain barrier protected the brain from the body's inflammation, and it doesn't not nearly as well as we thought. And so a lot of that information is becoming neuroinflammation. So like if, if I, if, you know, somebody who said, Hey, this is what happened to me. And now I know the term I'm a pump head. I would be like, I want to treat your neuroinflammation. I'm just going to presume that you have neuroinflammation and you're at really high risk for an autoimmune disease. And you probably have some gut leakage. And I, so I want to nutritionally treat that. And then I want to see what happens. Um, and this isn't going to hurt anything. Like we're talking about like omega-3s and good whole food calcium and, you know, like some, some good life probiotics and stuff like that and um, clean up the sugar out of your diet. And let's just roll with that for a few months and see what happens. And it's amazing for people who I'm just looking going, I'm seeing a lot of inflammation here. I want to treat that before I treat anything else, have just like, like a wildly different response to their life because of it is I kind of presume when somebody's had a lot of trauma in that regard, physical and or emotional, that they probably also have a lot of inflammation. So my, my suggestion would be to, to see somebody who specializes in functional medicine um, and who, who can treat that for help you come up with um, a diet that will help manage the inflammatory cascade and supplements and stuff that will specifically treat that. And it's amazing I've had like people like I like if you ever want to like you know rent out a billboard like I want to be on the billboard because I think it's <laughs> amazing like, I have a completely different reaction to my body and like and all I did was give you some fish oil you know but we don't we don't treat it like that people are like oh well that really sucks well you went through a lot and that's just how your life's gonna be and um, it, you know it's probably a lot of the response y'all are getting from your docs and I would look at some I would work, want to work with somebody who is looking you know more at the functionality and looking at what we can do nutritionally which is not treating the symptoms it's giving the body what it needs to treat itself and right. like we could measure your levels of inflammation but it's certainly not going to hurt anything to teach get some supplements that'll teach your, give your body what it needs to manage its own levels of inflammation. You know, my husband, he's, he's like, you're giving people like, you know, turmeric and shit. That's not going to hurt anything anyway. And um, like my husband is also like patient number one. He thinks I'm a miracle worker. He's off all medications that he used to be on um, back in the day. And so I would really look at treating inflammation. You know, the interesting thing that you mentioned that, because with the heart being involved, all of us have to fight inflammation every day anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, because I mean, when, when I went in, 
the initially when when I mean, no joke, my nurse practitioner hollered for an ambulance like within seconds of walking in the door to see me that day, and that was the day that they discovered I had a dissection and aneurysm. And I, I mean, I had surgery that night. He, he basically, the, the ER doctor said, if you don't have surgery before midnight, you're not going to see tomorrow. That's how bad it was. But that day I went in and my ankles and my legs were swollen so bad you couldn't see my ankle. I mean, that mm-hmm. literally, I have pictures of it. And I posted them on Facebook and I said, does anybody have a clue what in the world this could be an indication of? It was so bad. You know, but I mean, even now I have to take medication to keep the inflammation of my legs down. If I'm on my feet too long, they swell up and, and it, it's something we all fight every single solitary day because our heart's involved. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's the thing we all we all deal with. If you ever want to do a study with that, with what you want to do, your your thought about that, and factor in having a heart and aortic condition, I can get you all kinds of people to participate. Just tell, just say it, just say it. I'm <laughs> so. only licensed to practice in Texas, so and if your people are in Texas, and I I can. I can do di- distance work, but you do have to be in the state of Texas, unfortunately, because there is no national licensing. Actually, I, you know, I have some people you know, I might be able to talk to about that if we wanted to do a, a broader study, if there is a way that, that we could do it, because my clinical nutrition certification is tied to my license, so I still have to only practice in my state. I'm actually putting together a protocol in my head as we're talking about, like, I would know just what to do with us, and it would be one of those. Yeah, so simple, so helpful. Of using when I when I talk about supplements, people are like I've taken shit, and that you know that stuff is crap, and that doesn't help. And and probably and you're right, you probably took stuff that was crap, and it didn't help because you know the FDA FDA regulations around supplements are not as tight in this country. Um, supplements are treated as food not medicine, so they're not looking for how much active ingredient is in it, those kinds of things. Um, so a lot of supplements are crap. The, they're actually the New York Attorney General sent a cease and desist to a bunch of different companies, um, including you know big name like Walmart, Target, um, places like that, GNC, a lot of the places that we tend to get our supplements because there was like either like no active ingredient in it or there was stuff in it that was not listed that was actually dangerous. You know, like there was filler that people may have a bad reaction to um, or something. And so they like a big cease and desist about it a few years ago because so many supplements really were crap. And the other problem with supplements too is a lot of them are synthetic isolates, meaning that like, for example, if you go pick up vitamin C at the store and you look at the the label, it'll say vitamin C as ascorbic acid. Well, ascorbic acid is is a synthetic isolant. It's not whole food vitamin C. It's not the same thing as eating an orange. Um, And so your body responds to it differently. In fact, the person who synthesized ascorbic acid and won the Nobel Prize for it said himself that it's always so better to get it from the food. And that's because the, our bodies know what to do with food. Our right. bodies really don't know what to do with synthetic isolates. And so a lot of times we just pee it out um, and we don't get. So um, I, I use prescription grade supplements in my practice for m- most of what I do. Some things I don't care. I'm like, yeah, you can get that on Amazon. It doesn't really matter. It's all the same. But some things I'm very, very picky and brand wise about and use things that only I can give people by prescription you know, by nature of, of my training and my certification, because it's whole food, 
Um, I know the amount in it. I know how it's processed. I know the company and how they use it. I know how they blend things. Um, and so it's going to work because they have taken that regulatory process upon themselves. And they're like, well, this, this is more expensive. I'm like, well, yes, but this turmeric has then had fenugreek added to it, which increases the absorption by 44%. So the bottle is more expensive, but you're not going to need nearly as much. And you're also not just going to pee orange because you peed it all out. Your body's going to take it. <laughs> um, and so, and then I've had, because um, I treat, I, I'm a board supervisor, and so I treat all my interns for free if they, if they want me to, um, just as, you know, you're already paying for internships. So if you want me to do your nutrition, tr nutrition work, just, you can kind of see this. Um, I'm happy to do it. And I had one of my interns tell me recently that she had taken a, a CB, it was a CBD and a kava that, um, a family member had recommended. And she's like, and I had like this really horrible response. So she's like, it wasn't even any like cheaper than what you use. Um, and, I felt terrible, like it was terrible. And I'm like, well, the one that I use is hemp-based, so it's the root, not the leaf, so you're not going to get any live THC in it that would make you um, pop hot on a drug test. And it was also blended with omega-3s and broccoli, which helps with the inflammation, so you're not just getting the pain aspect, you're getting the inflammation treatment as well. And I said, in the kava, I use is water extracted, so you're not producing any ketones in your liver, causing you liver issues, so nothing that I will give you is ever going to make you sick. And a lot of the other stuff will. I mean, kava is a brilliant herb if used correctly, but a lot of people do have a pretty toxic reaction in their liver because if it's if the kava is extracted with alcohol, it produces a ketone in the liver, which can cause a lot of liver damage. And so the one I use is water extracted for that reason. So, you know, those kind of things, which is why I'm like, seeing a functional uh, medicine practitioner makes sense. And then we also know, too, what you can take and not take with your other meds. Like if somebody is on an antidepressant, I'm not going to give them Nervine herbs because they can get some serotonin poisoning for that. If somebody is on an HIV suppressant, I'm not going to give them Nervine herbs because it'll make those HIV suppressants not work. And so we're trained to know, it's, it's not indiscriminate, like, hey, I read about this on the internet, so I'm gonna take a bunch, bunch of St. John's wort, but I'm also already taking Lexapro. It's a really bad idea, which is why it's a good idea to, you know, to work with somebody who's got training in that area because we know what's going to be okay for you because we've had extensive training. Right. Makes sense. You know, we also in the group have a lot of caregivers that come in there and they, they kind of hang out with us and ask questions. If, if there's somebody in our lives that's dealing with trauma and we want to help, can you give them some suggestions and things they might could do yeah, and, and that is one of the things that I talked about in my book, Unfuck Your Brain, is, you know, what if I love somebody that's dealing with this? How can I help? And so, you know, there is, and of course, everybody is different. Um, some people, when activated, you know, want support. Some people need to be left the fuck alone for a minute. Yeah, and having a really good plan around that is important. You know, having a crisis safety plan that includes how can other people support me is really beneficial and we we all get activated and we all need different things at different times most of the time i'm like i've got this leave me alone girl but there are certain <laughs> times in my life where i just want my husband to come in and be manly and take shit over like it happens once every couple of years but sometimes <laughs> i really need somebody to do it and he's really good about knowing when he just needs to come in and take over and when i want to handle shit myself which is 
most of the time. And so, you know, we need to we need to have those conversations like when we're not activated, but when everybody's calm saying, you know, this is a regular part of your life. You've been through a lot of shit. What is most helpful when things are the hardest for you? Is it are there things that I can do that help? Are there things that I really need to avoid doing because they're not helpful? I know that sometimes it's hard to talk when you're really triggered or activated. Is there other ways that you can signal to me? Because sometimes we, we really can't verbalize really well. Um, I notice, I mean, and I'll notice and talk about that with clients. I'm like, wow, your physiology just really changed. Something just happened. What's up? You know, and like, it's, you know, and, and finding like, do you need a weighted blanket? Um, do you need me to leave you alone? Do you, would it be actually helpful if I hugged you? Um, you know, what kinds of things should we build around that because you know yourself better than anyone else? Or um, sometimes we don't know and just saying, well, do you want me to suggest things or do you want to kind of be left alone to figure it out? Because um, sometimes we get so overwhelmed that we just need somebody to make a decision for us. Um, you know, we've all been in that, like, I just, I don't even know, somebody, I just need somebody to do something for me. And do you want me to do that? Or do you want to figure it out and come back to me? You know, how, I mean, how, what's a better way to communicate it if you're feeling like you really can't even verbalize right now because you're really shut down? You know, and just having a plan for that, knowing how, what your reaction pattern is and planning around that. So, because for those of us who are caregivers, we want to help. We want to feel like we're doing something helpful. And we just don't know what it is. And so having a plan when, when people aren't activated of what to do when we are um, is usually the best way to go about it. And if that changes, it changes. It's like I'm going, you know, I'm going by the plan that we had, and if we need to do something different, I'm totally down for that. So it doesn't become this frustrating experience of I'm trying to be helpful, but I think I made things worse, and that wasn't what I, what I was trying to do, and now everybody feels like shit, and, um, which is something that's happened to all of us who have been in a caretaker role. <laughs> Yeah, being, being caretaker is tough because, I mean, you, you just, especially if you've never experienced the same thing, mm -hmm. you, know, you just don't know what they're going. That's why I love in that group that, that they let the caregivers be part of the group and they can see because, I mean, we're, <laughs> most of us are really open about what we're going through. Mm -hmm. and, and two of the people that I'm, I'm very close to, I, I got the nerve up to let them come into the group. And I'm like, okay, the, I'll go ahead and add you to the group. But you can't hold anything that I say in a comment against me. You you got to understand that. <laughs> you know this this is my safe space to vent about what's going on. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you, know you got to understand the rules of this group. You know so. <laughs> you know, and I'm not and talking I, about you when I make a comment. <laughs> so. And and I see and and I appreciate that. I've seen people you know post in different groups or whatever saying, this is my question for other people with this lived experience. Allies need to shut the fuck up and sit down. Totally get that. Totally fair. I don't have that lived experience. I appreciate being invited into the conversation so I can learn from it and support. But if you didn't ask my opinion, I need to shut the fuck up and sit down. And I mean, that's something that all of us that are allies in any way, shape or form need to do, whether we're allies to somebody who, you know, been through that kind of experience or, you know, we're allies to the queer community or, you know, whatever our allyship is, is we need to know when our support is needed and when we need to shut the fuck up and sit the fuck down. That's it. You know, you know a, a term that I never knew until after this surgery was new normal. 
Mm-hmm. And you, you've used that several times today. And I use that a lot now. I use that term a whole lot now because I, I now understand what new normal is, sadly. So tell us what a quote-unquote normal day is for somebody dealing with trauma because I bet you a whole lot of people don't really understand what that is. You know, and that's that's super broad, and so I don't want to give such a specific answer that somebody who is dealing with trauma, that that doesn't fit, because some people are very high-functioning. Um, yes. You know, we, you know, we talked about what, you know, the symptoms of that look like, of that, that the really negative affect and that, that hypoactivation. And there are people, plenty of people that are very high-functioning, and you would never know it. But they're, but they, so for, for those, the, the, the new normal is it's taking a lot of psychic energy to just maintain that normal. It's probably the best way that I can think of to explain it. That for the, for people who know spoon theory, and I bet you know spoon theory and a lot of, a lot of your, your other pump heads have heard of spoon theory. Do you know that one? No, about that title. It comes from individuals who live with chronic pain. And it's really perfect, uh, perfect explanation for anybody that's living with any kind of chronic condition, period, whether it be an emotional or physical issue. And it's using this idea that we have a certain number of spoons and everybody's different because if you say it's pie, then it's finite, right? And everybody has pie and you have a certain amount of pie and that doesn't change. And um, spoon theory, and you'll see the term, you'll see the term like spoonies and stuff online, and that's what it's referring to, is this idea that um, there is a certain amount of that. It's different for different people, and it's different even for the same person based on other stuff going on. And so your new normal may be you have significantly less spoons. So we can call it units of energy. We can call it bucks in our pocket. Like we can call it whatever it wants, but... It's basically saying that there, there's only a certain, there, we only have so much. And when you're going through that, it takes a lot to deal with it. When you are chronically activated or you're in chronic pain or you have chronic inflammation, it takes more spoons to get up and take a fucking shower. It takes more spoons to actually put on pants and go to work. It takes a lot of spoons to sit sit through a meeting, which could have been an email and everybody could have gotten shit done rather than sitting there (laughs) for two hours. It takes more because you're having to deal with the physicality of your body um, or the physicality of how your brain is working. And so it, it takes more energy. It takes so much more to maintain and you just run out of spoons. And so I think the new normal is and you may be presenting as completely normal and then you go home and you collapse. You're just fucking exhausted. Um, or you get through the week and you're done. Like you can't do shit on the weekend like a normal person going to the farmer's market. All you can do on the weekend is sleep because you are in spoon deficit and you got to collect some spoons so you can get up on Monday and do this shit again. That, you know, just energetically, it's taking so much to get through that you may even be presenting really, really well and you're getting everything done, but it's taking every ounce of energy you have to do it um, because of what you've been going through. And so a lot of times what I do with clients is trying to figure out ways to get them more spoons 
do we treat the inflammation? Do we know that if you exercise, you feel better? So we need to plan spoons so you have enough spoons to actually go exercise, knowing that you're going to get a lot of spoons if you exercise, and so you have a net gain. So we have to kind of like plan your spoons around making sure you get that. You know, those and so I like that as an analogy because then we can sort of plan around, okay, so what do we need to do to get you spoons? Or, okay, have you hit where you're out of spoons? What do we need to do so you can rest and recuperate? And sort of thinking about how we all have units of energy, and if we've gone through something like what you've been through, we just don't have as much, and it takes more of what we do have just to function. And but there's no shame in that, and so we need to plan around it. Well, it's it's tough, too, when you work so hard to present like you're fine to the outside world, and then people don't get how hard you're working to mm-hmm. to do that, you know. And then and then you do come home and collapse, you know, and, and it, it takes everything to look that way when you're out doing things or getting things done or whatever. And then, like, I mean, like, I'll, I'll go and, and get my hair done, and by the time I get home, I'm done. I'm just, I'm done, you know. Or somebody goes, oh, you look great. And I'm sitting there going, it's taking every ounce of everything in my being just to be standing here, you know. So, yeah, it's, uh, I totally get that. I like that spoon dairy. Okay. Yeah. You'll find like the original essay and stuff on it, which is something that I print out and give to clients all the time. And that, you know, it becomes our shorthand of, you know, what do we need to do to get you some more spoons? What do we need to do to plan around your spoons? I keep a stash of plastic spoons in the office and it becomes kind of running just like here's a spoon, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> and it's really kind of a good way to conceptualize our new normal if that's where yeah. we are. I like that. Huh. Thank goodness I work from home is all I can tell you. So I yeah. can make a big I can, difference. I can come home and nap and work at four in the morning if I have to. It works it works beautifully. Thank goodness I had this and, all established before I got sick, right? And you don't have to find a spoon to put on pants. You can just be comfortable in your PJs and so you don't need a spoon for that. So you can Exactly. Yeah. I don't need to use a spoon to go get in the car and go to work. I can just do it here. Yep. See, mm-hmm. think of the spoons I save. So. Yeah, all, all your people who have had, you know, some kind of, of experience of depletion are more like, oh, my God, yes, this makes so much sense to me now. It's really good when we hear something like, oh, yes, that is it. I need to plan around my spoons. All right. Do you want to let the listeners know how they can find you? Absolutely. Um, so my, my sort of my clinical website for those of you who are in Texas and like, you know, wanted to come hang out with me at my office or do a phone session or whatever can find me at faithgharper.com. Um, that's just my, you know, my basics of my practice. And for those of you who are like looking for more of my writings or other radio shows and stuff that I've done, um, my more glitzy glamour website is intimacydoctor.com and that's dr not doctor spelled out and that is the one that my lovely husband you know maintains with all the books that i have out and all of my appearances and um, all the cool shit that i get up to that i forget to publicize and um, i'm on instagram and twitter and and facebook and all those places as the intimacy doctor if you if you want to follow my stuff it's usually pictures of my cats but sometimes it's other stuff too we gotta share the cats. <laughs> yes, I am crazy cat lady. Totally, no shame. There you go. Well, and on on both of the the show pages for last weekend this week, I will also be linking to to both shows. 
so they'll both be there. So if you go to www.readyforloveradio.com slash your brain and the number two, you'll find the archive for both shows. And last week was your brain and the number one. So thank you so much for being with me both weeks. I appreciate that. And there's links for the Kindle version and also the paperback version of the book. And I'm, I'm telling you, you got to check this book out. It's available on audio. If, then you can get any of my books by audio as well. And for Unfuck Your Brain specifically, I read the audio. So it's just me talking to you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. And I look forward to having you back. And listeners, I'll be with you next time on Ready for Love Radio.